0: If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. As we've seen in chapters 12 through 24, Ezekiel makes the case that the judgment that's going to happen to Jerusalem and Judah is well-deserved. That there are some who say, okay, we've done bad things, but, you know, enough is enough. And in these chapters, the Lord, through Ezekiel, makes the case that, no, um, you deserve even worse. And worse things are about to happen. And what's interesting is you'd think, well, you know, 13 chapters, I mean, it's like, are you going to just keep repeating yourself? You guys are toast. You guys have done bad things. We find a variety of literary devices. So in chapter 12, he acts out. We have the acting out signs. Chapter 15, we have a parable about a vine. Chapter 16, the story of the abandoned baby that is rescued. Chapter 17, the parable or the riddle of the two eagles. Chapter 18, a sermon of sorts regarding personal responsibility or individual responsibility. And then in chapter 19, which we looked at last week, a lament which is in poetic form. It's a Hebrew literary form. A lament is important, at least we find it in the Old Testament. One of the books of the Old Testament is Lamentations, and it consists of five laments or five poems in which Jeremiah laments over what has happened to Jerusalem. There are seven types of psalms in the Book of Psalms, and one of them is the lament. And I think some people might say, that seems strange. I mean, if you're gonna have a poem and it's gonna be in the Bible, shouldn't it be happy? I mean, shouldn't it make us want to be happy and joyful and all that? Um, But think a moment, in the midst of our sorrow or our grief, do we not in fact want the Lord to be present with us? And do we then not want to respond to him in prayer? And that prayer, in fact, would be a lament, which is what Ezekiel does in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, which we began last week, we're going to finish it today, um, we have a history lesson. Um, it is interesting, I'll come back to them in a minute, it is interesting that in making the case, so many different literary forms are used. And I think it's worth remembering. The message of the Lord is not one-dimensional. I think oftentimes when we think of the gospel, if we want to share the gospel with someone, we have sort of this cookie-cutter approach. This is what you say, you know, the Romans wrote. Um, you have you know, these, this way to say, and God says the same thing in many different ways. And I, I think that's worth noting including a history lesson. And I just want to revisit one part of the history lesson. Um, It's something I wrote about in the blog this past week, but I think it's really important. I think that many of us, and I think perhaps many in the church, have made the mistake of thinking that the Israelites, when they were in Egypt before Moses came, that they were really good people. They were godly people. They worshipped the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. And... They're being oppressed, possibly because they're good people. And so Moses is sent down there to rescue them. We are correct in that they were slaves. Okay, They had been enslaved by the Egyptians. We are correct that they were oppressed. Uh, slavery is no picnic. Okay, It's not a pleasant affair. But we are incorrect if we think that they were waiting for the salvation of the Lord to come and deliver them. If you look, we read uh, in chapter 20, beginning at verse 5, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of the house of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said, I am the Lord your God. On the day I swore to them, I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, Each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So, I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. So, apparently, they weren't godly people worshiping the true God. They were worshiping the false gods of the Egyptians. And when God said, you, I'm the Lord your God, you need to put away these false gods, these images, uh, and they're like, no, we don't want to do that. And so, at that point, God. Is in a position to pour out his anger and his wrath on them. And so the choice was either deliver them out of Egypt or he, in fact, would inflict his wrath on them. Again, we make the mistake of thinking deliverance was the only option, that the only thing God could do for Israel was to deliver them, was to rescue them and we are mistaken if we think this. And you're like, okay, Damon, why are you going on and on about this? Well, the Exodus is the redemptive event of the Old Testament. The Exodus is the Old Testament equivalent of Calvary, of Jesus dying on the cross to redeem us from our sins. It is a foreshadowing, it's pointing ahead to what Jesus will do for us. If you read the epistles, The language about salvation is exodus type. It is the language of the exodus. So if we make a mistake about the Israelites, we think, well, they were not bad people and God just wanted to get them out of slavery, then we will think the same thing about ourselves, that we were not bad people and, um, you know, it's heaven or hell and so, you know, we want to do heaven, obviously. And so you know, we, we said to the Lord, we will accept you as our Lord. Um, that way we don't have to go to hell. Um, somehow we think that we were passive victims, that we had been enslaved by sin and we needed to be freed. And like the Israelites, we did need to be freed from slavery. But we need to recognize that we were also rebels and we needed to be delivered from our sin, from ourselves, our own desires. I chose the prayer of confession, particularly the promise of forgiveness, very specifically here. Because if, if you have it with you, you'll notice in the promise of forgiveness, it says, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And I remember years ago, someone who attended this church for a while, was really quite upset with this passage because he said I've never been God's enemy I've never been God's enemy and see that is like a mistaken view of Israel like yeah we're, they were good people and they just needed to be rescued and I was a good person but you know I had to ch- choose which ticket I wanted hell or heaven and so I decided for heaven um, and we have missed something truly important that is we are the children of Adam And it's all about us. And we are in rebellion against God, even as children. Um, And we needed to be rescued, not only from sin, but from ourselves. An additional note here is when we think of sharing the gospel with someone, we need to realize that that person needs to be redeemed from sin, but also delivered from themselves. From the idolatry that is in their lives. Whatever form it may take. And it's the whole spectrum, by the way. If you have an inferiority complex, it's still about you. If you have a superiority complex, it's still about you. Okay? And you need to be rescued from that, you need to be delivered from that. Okay. Today, we continue in chapter 20, beginning at verse 45. And just a word here, you may remember, we've talked about this before, the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired, okay? The Bible wasn't written in chapters. The Psalms and Lamentations are specific poems, okay? But the the narrative form, you know, these were added later, and some of them are quite unfortunate. So what begins at verse number 45 should have been the beginning of chapter 21, because we have Uh, a parable that is spoken and then in chapter 21 the first seven verses we have the explanation of that so they should have gone side by side anyway verse 45 and by the way the word of the Lord came to me this is this lets you know this is the beginning of something another parable or another oracle or something else the word of the Lord came to me son of man Set your face toward the south, preach against the south, and prophesy against the forest of the south land. Say to the southern forest, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm about to set fire to you, and it will consume all your trees, both green and dry. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and every face from south to north will be scorched by it. Everyone will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It will not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, sovereign Lord, they are saying of me, Isn't he just telling parables? Okay. Things to consider here. First of all, in verse number 46, the word south um, or southern occurs three times. And we're reading in English, so we don't know this, but in Hebrew, three different words are used. The first two speak of direction. You know, let's see that way, south, okay? But the third word speaks of a place, the Negev, which is still there today. Uh, Some people have a B, some people have a V at the end, Negev or Negev. Um, It is south of the Judean hills. It's known as the Negev Desert today. It's waterless, except for where the settlements have begun to reclaim the desert. As was the case with lions, we saw that earlier. There were lions in Palestine, indigenous to Palestine, until about 1300. The Negev also didn't used to be a desert. It used to be heavily forested. Okay? So one could argue that the judgment that is being spoken of here, in fact, did happen. But is this to be taken literally? We'll, we'll look at this more in, in a bit. Ezekiel is seen as a riddler of riddles. And people are like, yeah, we're tired of it. You, know, you keep telling us these stories, these parables, these riddles. Um, And so he sort of complains to God, you know, that's what people are calling me. Um, Well, God then explains what this parable or this riddle means in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21. This is like what we saw with the parable of the two eagles. It is explained. Because if you just took the parable by itself, I have no idea what that could mean. It could mean anything. And the same here. Uh, when it talks about the forest being set on fire. So now the parable is explained. Let's read this. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord came to me. So again, this is another word from God. Son of man, set your face against Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuary. Prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to her, this is what the Lord says, I am against you. I will draw my sword from its scabbard and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Because I'm going to cut off the righteous and the wicked, my sword will be unsheathed against everyone from south to north. And all the people will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword from its scabbard. It will not return again. Therefore groan, son of man, groan before them with broken heart and bitter grief. And when they ask you, why are you groaning, you shall say, Because of the news that is coming, every heart will melt and every hand go limp, every spirit will become faint and every knee become as weak as water. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was going through this, it's like, okay, this is the explanation of the parable. I'm like, I don't see it. I mean, it doesn't say, well, this represents this. What in fact happens is that verses 2 through 5 match verses 46 through 48. So you may remember in verse number six, uh, 46, south is mentioned three times, twice direction, the third time a location. Well, now in verse number 2, you have the Jerusalem, the sanctuary, the land of Israel. So three mentions. So three of the south and then three with regard to Jerusalem and Judah. The sword in verses 1 through 7 matches the fire and the flaming blaze. All people will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword from its scabbard. It will not return again. And back in verses 46 through 48, everyone will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It will not be quenched. So the meaning of the parable is given. That, in fact, when he's talking about this huge forest fire that will take place south of Judah in the Negev forest Um, he in fact is talking about what God will do against Jerusalem and Judah now you can begin to see why the people kept saying of Ezekiel, isn't he just speaking parables he keeps telling us all these stories but what do they mean well now we know what it means The mention of the sword is noteworthy. And in fact, for the rest of our time together today, that will be the theme, the idea of the sword. Particularly as evidence that it is the Lord who has drawn his sword. As when Israel entered the promised land, Joshua was confronted by a man with a drawn sword. He is identified as the commander of the Lord's army. And Israel was assured that the Lord would, in fact, wield his sword, and he would give them victory in battle over their enemies. Now we come back to the idea of the sword. It occurs more than 10 times here in chapter 21. And then in the verses 6 and 7, Ezekiel mourns over what will happen to Jerusalem and Judah. And the people say, why are you crying? You know? Why are you mourning? Why are you groaning? And now we see it is because of the news, the news that is coming. we saw this in the lament of the princes. Even when you could say they are getting exactly what they deserve. They've sinned against God. They're rebellious against God. And then God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do to them. How can you be unmoved? Ezekiel is not unmoved. He is deeply moved by this And he will groan and mourn for their sins There is a place for lamentation I've mentioned this before And we're not there yet But in Ezekiel 33 verse 11 As surely as I live Declares the sovereign Lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked Can we say that? Ezekiel is in the second of three exiles. Daniel and them were in the first. He's in the second. And Jerusalem is about to fall. He could have easily said, listen, deal with it. I've I've had to live here in Babylon. No, he mourns. He groans because of what is going to happen to his people. So this is the first passage. There are actually four that deal with the sword. The second is in verses 8 through 17. And this has been called by many the song of the sword. Follow along if you would. Verse 8. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord says. A sword, a sword, sharpened and polished. Sharpened for the slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Shall we rejoice in the scepter of my son Judah? The sword despises every such stick. The sword is appointed to be polished, to be grasped with the hand. It is sharpened and polished, made ready for the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. They are thrown to the sword along with my people. Therefore, beat your breast. Testing will surely come. And what if the scepter of Judah, which the sword despises, does not continue, declares the sovereign Lord? So then, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. Let the sword strike twice, even three times. It is a sword for slaughter, a sword for great slaughter, closing in on them from every side. So that their hearts may melt and the fallen be many, I have stationed the sword for slaughter at all their gates. Oh, it is made to flash like lightning. It is grasped for slaughter. O sword, slash to the right and then to the left, wherever your blade is turned. I, too, will strike my hands together and my wrath will subside. I, the Lord, have spoken. In verses 8 through 11, may be hard for us, it talks about the making of the sword and the beauty of the sword. It's sharp. It's going to kill people. And then in verses 14 through 17, it tells us about what the sword is going to do. So the first part is, this is the making of the sword. It is a beautiful thing. In verses 14 through 17, this is what it's going to do. But what about verses 12 and 13? The verses in between. Here, once again, we see the emotional impact of judgment on the one who is prophesying about Judgment. He does not delight in this. He doesn't delight in informing them that they will be judged. And it is not simply Ezekiel who is affected. God is as well. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Cry out and wail, son of man. So that's to Ezekiel. For it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. They are thrown to the sword along with my people. Therefore, beat your breast. God cares deeply. And you'll notice the way that the language is, it isn't as though the sword is thrown at them, they are thrown at the sword. Great loss of life is about to happen. This may seem a strange place to do this, but have you ever wondered why this is written in poetic form? The Song of the Sword. We have the laments, they're in poetic form. Why does that happen? Why is it that the word of the Lord is not always in narrative form, it's not always prose? Sometimes there is poetry. Poetry has been described as a language that is specifically elevated into beauty. It is a beautiful way, it's not just sort of here are the facts, but an an elegant way, a beautiful way of saying something. I can see using poetry when you're talking about creation, the beauty of God's creation. We're talking about judgment here. Why would you use this beautiful art form, poetry, to describe the coming judgment? I think that's something that could be the subject of a series of sermons. But I'll mention just one possible reason why poetry is used. The, word's Lord, the, the Lord's word must be beautiful. Why? Because a primary attribute of God is beauty. That God is beautiful. Beauty is found in him. And God's revelation of himself is also beautiful. And God's revelation isn't always, hey, we get to get out of Egypt and be free from slavery. The word of the Lord is also, you guys are rebels. You're worshiping false gods. It speaks both the things that we think are nice and you know, we enjoy hearing, as well as the things that we'd rather not hear. So even when it speaks of judgment, it reveals God is a God of justice. And there is beauty in the language, if we would take the time to look for it. Now we come to the third part about the sword. This is the sword of the king of Babylon. Verses 18 through 27. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take, both starting from the same country. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. Mark out one road for the sword to come against Rabbah of the Ammonites and another against Judah and fortify Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road, in the junction of the two roads, to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows, he will consult his gods, he will examine the liver. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem, where he is to set up battering rams, to give the command of slaughter, to sound the battle cry, to set up battering rams against the gates, to build a ramp and and to erect siege works." It will seem like a false omen to those who have sworn allegiance to him, but he will remind them of their guilt and take them captive. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, because you people have brought to mind your guilt by your open rebellion, revealing your sins and all that you do, because you have done this, you will be taken captive. O profane and wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban, remove the crown. It it will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted, and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin, a ruin. I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. So what is, again, this is one of those acted out signs, Uh, Ezekiel is supposed to draw something in the dirt like it's a road and then you come to a fork and if you go to the one side you're going against the Ammonites and if you go to the other side uh, you're going against the Israelites and so the king of Babylon who's sort of on this world conquest tour you know he's going to take nations out one by one it's like who should I do first you know who should I destroy first and so he does three different things three different methods. The first is called Bellomancy, in which arrows have names written on them and then they are put in a quiver and then it's sort of sh- shaken up. And then with his right hand, he reaches in and then he brings out an arrow, whatever the name is, that's where he's going, okay? So that's one method. The other is a consultation with his gods or the teraphim. We're not quite sure how this works, but these are the ancient, the ancestral gods, the house gods, usually fairly small and we're not sure how it's done but somehow they would give him a direction as to which way he should go and then the third and this is a medical term i think hepatoscopy it is an examination of the liver it was a common practice among ancient peoples that they would sacrifice an animal and then the priest would cut it open and look at the liver And if it looked a particular way, that means go for it. If it looked bad, then don't. And so he's trying to decide, should I go against the Jews? Should I go against the Ammonites? And ultimately, he will end up going against Jerusalem. But the people in Jerusalem, this is bogus. This is like false religion. This is paganism. It's like, hello, (laughs) you people have been doing pagan things. They think they are safe, that in fact, the king of Babylon will not come against them and he will judgment is coming judgment is coming and there will be ruin Jerusalem will be destroyed and the temple that Solomon built hundreds of years earlier will be torn down the fourth part or the fourth passage with regard to the sword is found in verses 28 to 32 it's a sword of Ammon the Ammonites Okay, he did the sword of Babylon, now the Ammonites. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says about the Ammonites and their insults. A sword, a sword drawn for the slaughter, polished to consume and to flash like lightning. Despite false visions concerning you and lying divinations about you, it will be laid on the necks of the wicked who are to be slain, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. Return the sword to its scabbard. In the place where you were created, in the land of your ancestry, I will judge you. I will pour out my wrath upon you and breathe out my fiery anger against you. I will hand you over to brutal men, men skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be shed in the land. In your land, you will be remembered no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Let me begin by saying this is one of the most obscure and difficult passages to understand in the entire book of Ezekiel. And that's saying something, okay? Um, But the message appears to be to the Ammonites. Uh, Some people think uh, that it could have been to the Babylonians, but I think it's to the Ammonites. That's choice number two. Do I go against the Hebrews, the Israelites, or do I go against the Ammonites? And they might think we dodged the bullet. He's going after them. Well, like I said, he's on a world, world tour of conquest, so he will be coming after them a bit later. But in the meantime, they have decided, since they've dodged the bullet, that this is the time to just say nasty things about the people in Jerusalem, to hurl their insults. You guys are losers. He's coming after you because you're weak. We're strong. He didn't dare come after us. Uh, yeah, actually, he's coming after them after he gets done dealing with Jerusalem. Their turn is coming. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be shed in your land. You will be remembered no more. For all that the Jews and the Israelites will suffer in Jerusalem, okay, what the Ammonites will suffer will be even worse. Why? What did God say? You will be remembered no more. In fact, if it weren't for the Bible, we would never know about the Ammonites, would we? They're gone. Their civilization is gone. And so to their way of thinking, and I think the words of God are, are terrifying, nothing could be more terrible than you will never be restored. There's no hope of restoration. There will be no future generations. There will be no memorial to say, hey, the Ammonites used to live here not even a memory. And when I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a passage in Walker Percy's book, The Message in a Bottle. Um, And he's talking about the Hittites, who actually were a greater people than the Ammonites. Um, I think it applies to the Ammonites. So when I say Hittite, think Ammonite, Okay. Where are the Hittites? Why does no one find it remarkable that in most world cities today, there are Jews, but not one single Hittite, even though the Hittites had a great flourishing civilization while the Jews nearby were a weak and obscure people. When one meets a Jew in New York or New Orleans or Paris or Melbourne, it is remarkable that no one considers that event remarkable. What are they doing here? But it is even more remarkable to wonder, if there are Jews here, why are there not Hittites here? Where are the Hittites? Show me one Hittite in New York City. And one could say, where are the Ammonites? Where are they? Show me one Ammonite. They are gone because of God's judgment on them. And for all the judgment that God was going to pour out on the people in Judah, on Jerusalem, he still was gracious to them. They would be restored. If you look at verse number 27. A ruin. A ruin. I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored. Until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. So there is going to be restoration down the line. Not for the Ammonites. No memory of them. God will in fact. Judge his people. He will punish them. But there will be restoration. But who is this to whom it rightfully belongs, to him I will give it. Who is that? Who is he referring to? Well, the language is very similar of what Jacob said as he blessed his sons. And to Judah, he says, the scepter will never depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. Who is that again? It's the Lord Jesus. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the house of David. He is the one who brings restoration to God's people. He is the one to whom it rightfully belongs. He is the one to whom God would give his people. The book of Ezekiel thus far can be quite discouraging because it's like judgment, judgment, judgment. But if you read carefully, and we've tried to do that in our study. There's always a word of grace. There's always a word of hope. Yes. Jerusalem will be devastated. The temple will be torn down. A ruin. A ruin. God would leave it in ruins. Until. Until. The one to whom it belonged. He would give it to them. In the midst of these terrible words of judgment, we hear of the coming savior. That in fact, the Lord Jesus would come and he would save his people from their sins. That's what Joseph was told. And let's go back to where we started today. Are his people like, yes, we wanna be saved, bring us salvation, no. Many of them are unhappy. They know that their lives aren't going anywhere. But they're still in their sin. They're still rebellious. But one day Jesus came. And he delivers us not only from sin. But from ourselves. Our rebellion. And the words that are spoken by Ezekiel to the people in Jerusalem. And in Judah. We should take to heart. That God in fact could have brought judgment on us but through the Lord Jesus has brought salvation from sin and from ourselves. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is difficult, and we don't want to, but it is difficult to imagine how lost we were, how lost people are, Oftentimes we view your salvation as sort of a a fix me up, Um, you know, to patch the holes, to to repair things. We fail to see, I think, because it's deeply humbling, that you not only rescue us from our sins, but from ourselves, whose hearts are idle factories. That pump out idols left and right. It seems that we would rather worship anything other than you. But you and your grace. When you could have poured out your wrath. Were gracious and merciful. You sent your son. The one to whom it belongs. And he gave his life to give us life. I thank you for the poetry of your word. Living when and where we do, we're not always keen on the poetic word. But there is a beauty to it, a beauty that reflects your beauty. We are grateful for it. We're grateful for Ezekiel's grief over the sins of his people. May we emulate him in that regard. At a time in which we would rather fight political battles than mourn over the state of affairs, may we look to Ezekiel as an example. We thank you for your word for the book of Ezekiel. May your spirit drive home the truths that we've heard today. I thank you for bringing us together First day of a new week The beginning of the second half of this year We thank you for sparing us We thank you for loving us And your deep care for us May your spirit and your grace go with us As we leave this place today I pray in Jesus name Amen